If you have your Bibles with you, open to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 11 this morning. And of course, the title is Living Faithful in an Unfaithful World. It seems as if our society is on a collision course with chaos and confusion. Genuine compassion and concern seem to be evicted from the minds of the people. With that, the media reports more bad news as compared with good news. For example, approximately 90% of all media is negative. Sensational stories form 95% of the headlines. And media with negative news or stats gets more 34, excuse me, more than 30% attention. A bad story grabs more attention, 30% more is what I'm trying to say. And you probably can guess this. Back in 2020, COVID-19 coverage, you ready for this, was 87% negative. You probably were guessing that already. And it seems that our society and culture persist in putting God out of everything. And whenever or whenever or whatever God's presence is ignored, this results in absolute chaos and disorder. So, here comes the question. Is there any hope of moving out from under this cloud of confusion? Is there any hope? What is our discourse in the midst of these disturbing dilemmas? What can the people of God do? What can you and I do? The answer seems simple enough, but the process is very, very challenging. Look in verse 10. It gives us the answer. The answer is to live faithful in an unfaithful word world. I'm sorry. Look what it says in verse 10. Be faithful unto death. There's a lot can be said about that one statement. This is the letter, of course, addressed to the church in Smyrna. Ismar, the third largest city in modern Turkey, is built upon the rubble of the ancient city. It's possessing a landlocked and protected harbor. It began at sea level and climbed up the slopes of Mount Pegasus. And as you looked up from the harbor onto the mouth, you could see a panorama. And people back in ancient times would call it a crown. It had a winding thoroughfare road going up the mountain. It passed all the different magnificent temples dedicated to the gods such as Aphrodite, Apollo, and then towards the top, a noble shrine. You'll see here in a moment what's left of it. It was a temple dedicated to Zeus. They referred to the city as the first in Asia. It was loyal to Rome. In fact, it beat out, a, it beat out ten other cities to build the first temple to the Emperor Tiberius in 26 AD, which started emperor worship. And in fact, it became a center of that in later decades. 
Now there was a large Jewish population and they were opposed to Christians. Jews were active in denouncing Christians, the authorities, and they excommunicated Christians as heretics. One historical event some of you probably heard of back in February the 25th of 155 AD, the Bishop Polycarp was burned alive in that city. The reason why? He refused to call Caesar Lord. And interesting enough, the persecution was instigated or prompted by the Jews. And Arrhenius, one of the church fathers, confirms that Polycarp knew the Apostle John. And we look back in verse 8. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life. That title, the first and the last, is drawn from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, and Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. 44, 6 says, I am, the, I am the first and the last. There is no God beside me. And then 48, 12, I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. And that title is used for Christ only in the book of Revelation. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 17. Here in chapter 2, verse 8. And then later we'll see it in chapter 22, verse 13. Now, the people in Smyrna, the believers, need to know about this, that he is the first and the last, because it reminds them that Jesus is the genuine first. They needed to hear that Jesus is preeminent and watching over them. He precedes all creation, and he alone will remain when everything else is gone. He is sovereign over history. He controls the past and the future and he guarantees vindication for his suffering followers. You see how that goes in contrast. People refer to the city as the first one in Asia, but Christ is reminding them he alone is the genuine first of everything and will last when everything else is gone. Of course, he says, he who was, who was dead has come to life. Now, this recalls both the history of the city as well the history of Christ. But there is evidence that Smyrna at one time lost its status as a city. It degenerated into a series of disorganized settlements. And this was the decline of about 400 years that was later to be revived into urban status. But I want you to understand the citizens living in this city that were not necessarily believers would know about this history. But nothing could compare to the fact that Jesus came back to life. That was more refreshing to hear that to the believers than any citizen would hear the story about the city that was once dead, but now is back alive as a city. Jesus said, wait a second, I have one better than that. Literally in the Greek, I became dead, but I have come back to life. Jesus guarantees one's future life, assurance that their ultimate future is secured. I want to reemphasize that, especially today in light of recent events. Your future security is secured. Even in the midst of terrible circumstances, stress, persecution, reminds me of blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Blessed assurance. Oh, what a foretaste of air salvation. Echoes from, I forgot the list of the word. 
Never quote a hymn, brothers, if you forget the words. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior. Yes. I'm wondering now if our brothers and sisters in Ukraine know that hymn and even singing it now in light of what they're going through. He tells them in verse 9 that, I know your tribulation, your affliction, your suffering, and your poverty. Now, as you look at this letter, there's one thing missing. This is one church that doesn't have any weakness listed. He doesn't come out and say, this is one thing I have against you. You don't see that in this letter. There's one other, and that's Philadelphia. But here's another interesting fact. It is the least significant in terms of numbers and influence. But yet, he doesn't have anything against them. At least in the text, I don't see one. It reminds me to not get caught up in numbers and influence because it's more important to be faithful than to be powerful and influential. Tribulation, affliction, and suffering. The idea is extensive persecution. You have to remember one thing, dearly beloved. They could deny Christianity and embrace Judaism, and everything would be fine. Or they could prepare themselves for serious persecution. That poverty, when we hear someone's in poverty today, we think, well, they have a place to live. They're probably getting food stamps or welfare. But in this case, they were robbed of the most basics of life. They literally had nothing in the Old Testament, poverty was viewed as an aberration, nonconformity. In other words, it was not allowed to have any people, the people of God, to be in poverty because the land belonged to Yahweh, and Yahweh gave it to the people. Therefore, no one should live in poverty. After all, all you get from God, we are to take care of our fellow sisters and brothers and not let anyone live in poverty. And before, I don't want to get political with this, but you know what? It seems to me that when the government stepped in and started doing the the church's job about taking care of the the poor and and the people who were hungry, that's when things started messing up. But that's just my opinion. We'll move right along. But look at the side note. Most of your translations will have in parentheses. In spite of their afflictions, God gave them spiritual riches. Look what it says. Your poverty, but you are rich. Because of their condition of tribulation and poverty, their values in God's eyes were exponentially increasing. They were poor economically, but rich spiritually. And later we will see, Laodicea was rich economically, but they were poor spiritually. He says not only does he know about their tribulations and their poverty, but he knows about the blasphemy or the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not. Slander against the people of God is slander against Him. Some things they're accused of, they're accused of being cannibals. They talked about drinking Jesus' blood and eating of His body. They talked about love feasts, and basically that was, we call it fellowship today. But because they called it a love feast, they were accused of immorality. They're accused of atheism because they did not accept any of the Greek gods. They're accused of arson because they spoke of the fire of the Spirit. 
And they're accused of disloyalty because they're unwilling to pronounce that Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Caesar is Lord. Now, Jewish opposition to Christianity is quite common in the New Testament. After the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the mass suicide at Masada in 72, those two events diminished the confidence of the Jews in the Roman world. And they were increasingly concerned about the inroads of the new faith in the Nazarene within their own ranks. Therefore, Jewish Christians who associated with synagogues was no great comfort. They saw them as a threat. Now, remember Polycarp we just talked about a minute ago? They denounced Polycarp in front of the Roman authorities. He was accused of defaming the emperor in the Roman religion because he refused to pronounce that Caesar is Lord. And as a side note, the Jews helped gather the wood for his burning. And by the way, it was on the Sabbath. And look what he says in verse 9. There are not, they say they Jews, but there are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There's some harsh words right there. They're guilty of slanderous accusations. They have also rejected the Messiah. They indulged in behavior that was clearly forbidden by Jewish law because they desired to protect their own physical and financial well-being. Now, he's not saying they're not Jews by ethnicity. He's denying they're Jews because their behavior and how they're conducting themselves. They claimed to be Jews, but the reality was they were just tools of Satan used against God's people, the church. And it reminds me of Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. That applies to us. We can call ourselves Christians, and we can dress up nice and look decent. But how's our heart? Are we seeking the praise of men and women? Or are we seeking the approval of God? As we go into verse 10, I want you to know the persecution they were under was extreme. All they had to do was embrace Jesusism or throw a little pinch of incest into the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. Oh, they probably wouldn't believe in their heart. Who would know? I'll just do it to protect myself. Now, put yourself in their shoes. What would you do? What would I do? Polycarp was burned alive because he refused to do it. Did you see the quote on that slide? I'm going to paraphrase. 86 years I've served him as king. He's never left me, and I'm not going to leave him now. Basically what it said. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Excuse me? Not you may suffer, or perhaps you will suffer. You are about to suffer. Now, of course, the prohibition of fear in times of trouble and persecution is a frequent topic. For example, in Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. In trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth shall, should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, 
Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Although there's invasion going on in Europe, God is my help and my strength and my refuge. Therefore, I will not fear. How about Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus speaking. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The worst thing a man can do to me in this life is to take my physical life, but he cannot destroy my soul. In my case, I am born again, in case you're wondering. Yes, I am a Christian. (laughs) And God holds my soul. I'm in his hands. Oh, they can murder me. They can denounce your truth. They can throw the Bible into the fire and do all these things. But they will never destroy the truth of God. How relevant this message has become over these last few days. Look what he says later in verse 10. Behold, and that, that word behold is an interjection. Behold, in other words, draw crucial attention to about what I'm about to say to you. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Romans did not use imprisonment as punishment. Rather, they used it for coercion against non-cooperation, resistance, and insubordination. Detention, printing trial, and awaiting execution. So when they heard they're about to be thrown into prison, they were facing certain days. See, back in Roman days, they put you in prison. They found you guilty, take you out back and kill you. There was no sitting around in jail for a long period of time. Look what he says, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, based upon uh, sources, ancient writings and inscriptions, it's conceivable that 10 days, they would spend 10 days in prison before they go into gladiator combat. That was a normal custom. You'd be thrown to prison and then you go out in the arena gladiator games or at least a target of one they'd be in there for 10 days and then face certain death can we grab the magnitude of what they're hearing he tells them in verse 10 to be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life Remember that picture of Smyrna? I wish I, I didn't find a good picture of one, but as you look from the harbor up, you can see this winding road and all these beautiful temples, and it was such a panoramic view, and the people would call it a crown. And yet here he tells them about a crown, the crown of life. That would be the gift of the risen Christ to those who are faithful. Now, interesting enough, the crown promised is the victor's crown as opposed to a diadem. So a royalty figure would not wear this crown. At least it's indicating they were a king or a queen. But it was worn by an athlete who won an athletic event. In other words, it's a winner's crown. And here's the point that I think he's trying to make. You consider yourselves as winners regardless of the persecution you're going through. Because you're not losers. You're winners in Christ Jesus. And may I echo echo that to you this morning. If you know Christ, you're not a loser. You are a winner in every sense of the word. Nothing in this life can ever take your relationship away from God the Father.
through Jesus' son. You are securely in his hands. And that sounds fine and dandy when I'm standing behind a pulpit, but I cannot help think about my brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. When people get shot and killed, would I be able to stand up then? Yes, but not on my own strength. I believe the Holy Spirit would give me what I need at that time when I was, if I was ever to face that. Of course, he says, he who has near, let me hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Once again, indicating this is not just for the believers in Smyrna. This is for everybody to heed and to listen. And then he says this in verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt, be hurt by the second death. They may lose their physical lives, but they'll never have to experience the second death. Now that second death doesn't really become apparent what is meant by that until we get to chapter 20, verse 6, and verses 14 and 50. 14 and 50 in the same chapter. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Did you hear what I just said? The first resurrection. Over those, the second death has no power, but there will be a priest of God and of Christ will reign with him for a thousand years. In my humble opinion, the first resurrection of those who are saved, we are raptured. And it says back in verse uh, chapter 20, they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And there will be another resurrection. Now, I, I believe people can still be saved in the time of the tribulation. Because look at verses 14 and 15 in that same chapter, chapter 20. The death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's still that chance. That someone could come to know Christ during the tribulation. Now, if you ask me if I'm pre, mid, or post, I'm still out on that. I think there's good arguments all the way around. But the point I'm making here is the second death. The first death is bad enough. Don't come close to the second death. The most intense flame here on earth cannot burn your soul. But apparently the second death can. And if your name's not written, found in the book of life, you're thrown into the lake of fire. How is your name written in the book of life? By coming to Christ. And your name is written down. Very sober message, is it not? And I wonder what the believers in Smyrna would tell us today. I hope I never take my freedom for granted here in this country. That with my last dying breath, I proclaim the good news of Christ. Because we have to realize, dear beloved, that that kind of persecution can happen here in the future. Are you ready? Ask yourself and search your heart, are you willing to make any compromises? And before you say no and be hasty with your decision, consider this. Would you even be tempted to compromise if that allowed you to avoid persecution? Now, I'm not talking about being called a conservative or, or narrow-minded or a bigot. I'm talking about being burned at the stake or getting shot in the head or your wife or your children. And as I think about that, I could not escape this next one. 
Are we as a church, and I use the church in the, the America, I mean, not just Forestburg, but all church here in America, are we guilty of already compromising in our society already? Is that the why our society is in the shape that it's in? You and I can only endure trials and persecutions by the power of the Lord. You cannot do that on your own. We must draw away from this world and draw towards Christ. John chapter 3, verse 30, when John sent his disciples out to go ask if he is truly the Christ, and John was, he found to confirm, yes, he's indeed the Christ, he echoed these words, he must increase, but I must decrease. The crown of life is guaranteed to all who remain faithful. We need to draw strength from the Lord by living faithfully to Him. Are you going to be strong? In order to be strong, it's good to have biblical knowledge and Scripture memorized so you can If you lose your access to the written word, you can find it and you know it in your mind and your heart. But I believe true strength only comes by one way, and that's bending of the knee, submitting to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of God the devil. Where are you this morning? I'm looking around the room and I believe that most, if not everybody in this room, considers themselves a follower of Jesus. Praise God. What are we going to do when persecution hits? We've been very blessed. Blessed beyond measure. Go. To a website called Voice of the Martyrs. Take a look at some of those stories of what people are going through because of their faith. And I want to echo the words of Christ Himself in this letter Be faithful unto death. Now, I'm not telling you go out and be a martyr. So we have to stand. You have to be like Martin Luther, the great reformer. Upon the word of God I stand. I, can got, I cannot go any further. And we as a people, I believe, neither repent the church in America. We have compromised for far too long and apologized. I'm just the messenger. The authority doesn't rest in me. The authority rests in the author of the message. That's God himself. If you have a problem with it, take it up with him. Look what he says in this text. He wrote it. The good news is there's still time for repentance and restoration. But that's up to you. He is ready to restore, to forgive, and to bring you right back. That's why this place is called a sanctuary. We can just let go of everything, all the baggage, all the hurt, all the embarrassment, all the shame, just let it go.
But now is the time. Because the time of the second death is coming. And we're just scraping the top of the iceberg right now in Revelation. Let's be like those early Christians in Smyrna. Who refuse something that could be excused so little. I'll throw it in there. God knows I don't really think he's Lord. But they refuse to even do it, to even think it. Because they declared, Caesar is not Lord. There's only one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. What say you? What say you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your Son and the gift of your Holy Spirit. Father, help us in our weakness that we will stand firm on your truth. And we will speak your truth in love. There's people all around us who are hurting, her in pain. And they're angry and confused. Help us speak truth into their lives. Not that they will see us, but rather they will see you. Help us to see people and not define them as what they do, what they haven't done. Let us see people, what Jesus can do with them. What Jesus can accomplish in their lives if they simply would turn it over to him. But Father, we know that journey begins with each and every one of us first. So search our minds and search our hearts this morning. May we be found faithful unto death. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me please?